Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment. Yes, a Black History Moment with Bo. And I am here today to tell you a few things for sure, to tell you a few facts. My friends, I tell you a few things that should have been taught to you in school, but I am not a teacher. I am an awakener. And this program is to open your eyes and give you a few moments of knowledge, which I hope will capture your interest and make you feel good about us. I hope you research it on your own and learn more. And once you have acquired that knowledge, pass it on to other people whether it is at the dinner table or in the break smoke area. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you take your knowledge and that you share it with others. You know, this show has a lot of listeners, but if I only had one, if I only had one listener and he or she gained a little knowledge from this show, I will be here. I will be here twice a week, passing some knowledge down to you. This is how the true story of our people have passed through decades. And true enough, we had a history before slavery, but we know nothing of that history. It was taken away from us along with our names and our language. And whiteness seems to keep telling us to get over it. But how can we get over something that has been embedded in our very bones? Yes, we are African Americans, but we are a product of slavery. But since we have become educated, and can stand up and look them squarely in the eye and not call them master, we are no longer useful. We are a liability. So a liability is something that you want to get rid of. And they came up with different ways of doing that. They did it by locking up the majority of our young black men. Our black women stepped to the plate and got well-educated and got our backs just as they soothed our whipping wounds back in the days. And we have their backs. The invisible wounds are still there. They don't tell the Jewish people to get over the Holocaust and we will not get over what has been done to us. They have a reason to be scared, and they know that they are going to be replaced. And there is nothing they can do to stop it. People of color will become the majority in the classroom, in the courtroom, and throughout our political system.
we are here to take our true place on this world. And that will not be done overnight. But remember, a river cuts through a rock, not because of its power, but its persistence. Today, my friends, we're going to slip into darkness. And as the group war once said in their infamous song, I'm going to take your mind beyond the trees. I'm going to tell you about a man by the name of Isaiah Thornton Montgomery. He was born enslaved on May the 21st, 1847 at Hurricane Plantation on Davis Bend, now Davis Island, below Vicksburg, Mississippi. Now, this large and fertile estate near the Mississippi River was one of several Davis Bend plantations owned by Joseph E. Davis, elder brother of Jefferson Davis, the future president of the Confederate States of America. Joseph Davis, a small, thoughtful man steeped in the utopian philosophy of the British social reformer Robert Owen, preferred persuasion and compulsion, believing that he could maximize profit through rational and humane labor practices. He created one that the plantation, what he thought to be a community of corporation based on a limited but still extraordinary degree of self-government and enlightened paternalism. These 350 black servants, he never called them slaves, even though they were enslaved, were permitted to operate an independent court that for the first part managed plantation discipline. His enslaved field hands enjoyed relatively good working conditions and comfortable quarters, adequate food and clothing, and a level of medical and dental care unknown to poor white people. Isaiah's parents, Benjamin Thornton and Mary Lewis Montgomery, made the most of such opportunity as Davis's flawed utopia permitted. Ben managed to buy his wife's time as a plantation worker from Davis, which allowed Mary to remain at home, work occasionally as a paid seamstress for white people, and rear their five children. Both were literate, and Ben, at least, was given access to the master's extensive library. Mary's life has largely escaped the attention of historians, but Ben is known to have been a brilliant and enterprising man who earned his master's confidence and achieved a level of independence and responsibility that have few parallels in the annuals of plantation slavery. As the bond of this unlikely friendship between Joseph and Ben deepened, Ben emerged as the most favored and influential enslaved man at Hurricane. Joseph encouraged Ben's desire for improved reading and writing skills, 
and Ben applied his developing task as a mechanic, machinist, and civil engineer to the needs of a thriving plantation. Ben also managed the cotton transaction of both Joseph and his brother Jefferson, 24 years younger, and the owner of nearby Briarfield Plantation. In 1842, five years before Isaiah's birth, Ben was allowed to open his own small dry goods store at Hurricane. Although initially dependent on Joseph's financial backing, this mercantile establishment flourished and soon Ben established his own credit line with New Orleans wholesalers. For a time, Ben even financed an extraordinary biracial education experiment in which a white tutor of his employee taught the Montgomery and Davis children in a single classroom. Like his father, Isaiah was a quick study who rapidly rose in Davis's esteem. As his master's valet and clerk since age 10, Isaiah served the Davis household in varied capacities, taught to read and write by his parents, and then formally educated briefly in the plantation school. He too enjoyed reading access to Davis Library and to the periodicals and newspapers that arrived at Hurricane through the mail. By his own estimate, he acquired through a great deal of reading and daily interaction with educated white people a fair knowledge of history and current events, language, and composition. He was 13 years old when Jefferson Davis was elected president of the Confederacy and 15 years old when the American Civil War disrupted the plantation routine at Davis Bend. The war fought between Union, Northern, and Confederate Southern states. In April 1862, as the Union forces tightened the grip on the lower Mississippi River, Joseph fled inland from his river plantations, taking with him his family and some of his enslaved workers. Ben and Isaiah remained at Hurricane to protect the plantation house and grounds. By that date, however, the war had exposed undercurrents of slave discontent, not previously suspected by Joseph Davis, and his community of cooperation was collapsing. Threatened by intermittent raids by both Confederate and Union soldiers, Joseph could only watch from afar as his white overseers deserted and his trusted servants joined in the looting of his possessions and fled his control in wholesale numbers. Confederate forces burned his cotton and Union raiders destroyed Hurricane and stripped Jefferson Davis's Briarfield plantation. Isaiah's father closed his merchantile store, and for a time, he and Isaiah struggled to provide for the remaining Davis Bend labor force. But you see, their best efforts were quickly overwhelmed by wartime social disintegration. However, and they too left Davis Bend. 
Briefly, Ben was employed to the repair of Union naval vessels by David D. Porter, the commander of the Union Mississippi fleet, who taught him to be an ingenious mechanic. After Porter helped the Montgomerys relocate to the safety of Cincinnati, Ohio, Isaiah remained behind as the Admiral's own cabin boy. In late 1863, dangerously ill with a persisting dysentery, Isaiah too was sent out of harm's way to Ohio. At war's end, Ben would return to Hurricane with his sons Thornton and Isaiah and reopen his mercantile exchange. Meanwhile, amid the chaos of war, as growing numbers of destitute slave refugees became a Union responsibility, Davis Ben once again became the site of a utopian experiment. Initially known as General Grant's Negro Paradise, after the Union general who sought to create a haven for slave refugees, the fertile fields of Davis Bend were managed by the Freedmen's Department of the Military during the war and by the Freedmen's Bureau immediately afterwards. The land itself was farmed at first collectively by slave refugees and then in separate parcels from 5 or 10 to 100 acres by black leases, many of whom had no prior connection to Davis Bend. When the war ended in 1865, so too did this promising experiment in land reform. Although Confederate President Jefferson Davis was captured by Union forces and imprisoned for two years after the war, Joseph Davis and other Davis Bend planters were soon pardoned and their lands restored to them. The elderly and now nearly insolvent Joseph Davis did not return to his plantations, however. Even before he regained full possession of his land, he leased it to the Montgomerys soon after their return from Ohio. Then in 1867, in one of the more astonishing turnabouts in Southern history, this former master sold to his favorite former enslaved men both Hurricane and Briarfield for $300,000 at very liberal terms. Scarcely half a decade out of bondage, the Montgomerys now numbered among the region's largest cotton producers. My friends, there is no other American story quite like that of the Montgomerys in the early aftermath of slavery. Having effectively freed themselves by taking refuge in Cincinnati, they returned to their place of bondage, legally freed by the 13th Amendment, in early 1865, Ben and his sons re-established their store at Hurricane as Montgomery and Sons. Isaiah was assigned the bookkeeping and correspondence. Once in possession of Davis's estate, they became the third largest cotton producers in Mississippi. 
They improved the land, diversified their crops, restored the buildings, and produced prize-winning long-staple cotton. Their cotton took first place at the famous St. Louis Fair in 1870, and the top awards again at expositions in both Cincinnati, 1873, and Philadelphia, 1878. They bought a third Davis-Benn plantation, which increased their holdings and labor force to more than 5,500 acres and 1,000 field hands. They established a second merchandise store in Vicksburg. White people sometimes remarked that they were the best planters in the county and perhaps in the state. Isaiah's life's work, however, was just beginning. His health recovered and so did his appetite for yet another experiment in race building. Having been raised on a philosophical conversation of Joseph Davis and his father, Isaiah shared their wish for a community of cooperation. It was his conviction, however, that utopia could not be built by bond servants, as Davis believed, nor by tenant farmers, as his father had hoped. Rather, he would pursue his dream of achievement, pride, and independence for his race in an all-black colony of autonomous landowners who farmed on their own account. The Mississippi Delta proved to his liking, and in 1887, at age 40, Isaiah, with his cousin Benjamin Green, founded the town of Mound Bayou as the commercial center for a large colony of black farm owners. Now, if many of you, my friends, saw the movie starring Samuel L. Jackson called Eve's Bayou, this is the town in which Eve's Bayou was about. From its early beginning as a raw settlement carved out of the Boulevard County wilderness, Mound Bayou became a place of black refuge in a hostile world and a laboratory for black economic development. Reflecting the self-segregating tendencies of conservative black thought during the age of Jim Crow, Montgomery liked to boast that not a single white person resided or owns property within Mound Bayou's limits. As the village grew and its commercial establishment expanded, he and other town leaders called it the Jewel of the Delta and the Negro Capital of Mississippi. President Theodore Roosevelt thought it to be an object lesson full of hope for the colored people. Booker T. Washington described it as both a school and an inspiration. The age of rigidly enforced racial separation, Montgomery's community seemed to be the very model of separate black economic development a vibrant example of a group economy in which black dollars circulated in a closed black economic order. Self-governing and self-sustaining, 
Mound Bayou grew in Montgomery's lifetime to a town of some 800 inhabitants, surrounded by a larger black colony of some 30,000 acres. It had lighted streets, little crime, a bank, churches, school, and more than 40 retail establishments. Some of its homes were among the finest in the Delta. Montgomery, as first citizen of Mound Bayou and one of its more prosperous merchants and larger landholders, built a 21-room red brick mansion as his family residence. After World War I, the town in the 1920s, like small agricultural centers throughout the region, began a rapid and irreversible decline, however, and by World War II in the 1940s, it was no longer a showplace. But until the day he died in 1924, Montgomery had reason to think Mound Bayou not only as the most notable achievement of his 77 years, but as an enduring monument to what he called the genius of the Negro race. My friends, Montgomery can only be labeled a genius. He did things in the middle of the Jim Crow South that you would think were impossible. May you rest in peace, my brother, and know that your story is alive and being told. Know that this show will pull you out of the darkness and reveal your brilliant light to the rest of our people. My friends, we know what that music means. But before I go, let me tell you this. We should write our history books to prove that we did have a past and that it was just as worth writing and learning about as any others. We must do this for the simple reason that a nation and a people without a past is a people without a soul. Until next time, my friends, it's been my honor. <laughs>